Hello, my name is Ian Boyd and welcome to Natural Capital. We are back with our second series for Fast Sounds with 12 episodes coming to you over the next 12 months. In series one, we introduced the topic of natural capital and looked at various topics, including peatlands, Scotland's rainforests, seaweed, ecosystem markets, and financial topics. You can listen back to all of the previous episodes and guest speakers wherever you normally get your podcasts from. Please like, follow, and subscribe, and get in touch if you have any questions or have a great natural capital story to tell and share. I am normally the producer of the series, but your regular host, Rachel, can't be with us today. So we are also joined by senior environmental consultant, Fiona Salter, who is helping with the production. Welcome back, Fiona. I think you were last on series one on seaweed, is that right? Uh, yes. So back last year. Yeah, so. <laughs> but thanks for having me back. <laughs> Very welcome. Slightly different topic for us today. So we are recording this in spring and everything is starting to come back to life after a long and dark winter. And one thing I'm really noticing when we're out and about is the increase in buzzing and, and insects um, that are obvious. So it seems like a great time to discuss all things bees, butterflies and biodiversity with today's guest speaker, Dr. Lorna Cole. Hello, Lorna, and thanks for coming on the Natural Capital podcast. Hi, and thanks for having me and giving me time to talk about bugs. Is there anything better in life? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, so Lorna is an agricultural ecologist at Scotland's Rural College, working in SEC Consulting's environment team, where she helps to address the challenge of feeding our growing world population, whilst also protecting our environment. Previous to becoming a consultant, she was a researcher with a strong focus on exploring how biodiversity goals can be positively incorporated into agricultural systems and how this can be achieved in an economically viable way. She is particularly interested in beneficial insects, including pollinators, as we can tell already, and understanding how agricultural practices influence these insects and the ecosystem services they deliver. Would that be a fair biography of yourself, Lorna? Yes, I think that's perfectly fair, nothing too damning there. Is there anything you'd like to add about your uh, background or experiences before we get into the questions? No, I've uh, recently moved to the environment team. Uh, some people think I have gone to the dark side, <laughs> uh, moving to consulting, but I think it's great opportunities to enlighten people about the research we've conducted over the years. Yeah, and I guess it's a nice way, isn't it, of um, kind of applying that research in a kind of practical real world setting as well, um, which I think is really important. So let's start, we always like to start these episodes with something really kind of basic and intro. So can you just give us um, a kind of a, a brief overview of biodiversity? Why is it important and why should farmers, landowners be concerned and interested in it? I think the term biodiversity, it's now mainstream. Um, most people recognise what we mean. You typically think biodiversity, you immediately think of all the different species, your beetles, your birds, your plants, your mammals. But biodiversity, it's much wider than this. It covers 
the diversity of life on Earth, and that includes genetic diversity, so the ge genetic material that makes up species, and also diversity of ecosystems. I think we're all becoming increasingly well-versed in how vital biodiversity is to our quality of life. So we rely on plants and trees to purify the air we breathe, peatlands to filter and store water, the marine and terrestrial habitats, they catch and store carbon. And this helps us tackle climate change. A uh, figure I find quite astonishing is that in, in Scotland, our peatlands store the equivalent of 140 years of greenhouse gas emissions. So I think that highlights how important these ecosystems are. Yeah, and I think you're you're talking about something that comes across. Well, it's come across in every other episode we've done. To be honest, it's it's about these kind of interactions you have and the various ecosystem services that you know nature and biodiversity gives and the the worth it has to us, whether it's a financial worth or you know environmental benefits or you know. You touch on uh, food production, and I think that's so important. Um, because if we look even at just the soil insects, we've got a whole host of bacteria, insects, fungi, they're breaking down dead and decaying material. This means we don't just get this huge mass of decaying material building up. It means that it's getting broken back down. And they're very clever. They convert these nutrients into forms that plants can uptake so that allows our crops to grow and then we've got a whole host of natural enemies that will keep pests under control we've got our insect pollinators that are really vital to crops such as um, oilseed rape field beans raspberries apples all the things we like to eat so i mean can we put a worth on this? I mean, should we put a monetary value on, on this sort of thing for all the ecosystem services and provided by the biodiversity in Scotland? I think there's some things in life you you just can't put a value on. So for most people, it will be friends, families, maybe hobbies. It could be music or art. And I think almost everyone, nature would feature in that in some way so it could be directly it could be that hearing birds sing or taking a walk in a woodland or seeing a butterfly all these are direct ways that nature can benefit us also a lot of things we do we benefit indirectly from nature so morning coffee a sneaky slice of chocolate cake in the afternoon cold cider and a warm day you know without biodiversity we wouldn't have these things or we, we might have them but they would be prohibitively expensive what i would say is the world unfortunately it revolves around money and when we make decisions we make them based purely on economics so if we don't value biodiversity, then if there's no monetary value, it means it's been undervalued. And because of this, 
you know, biodiversity isn't included in decision-making in the past, and it's now in a really pretty bad state. A recent assessment, a global assessment, it looked at biodiversity and ecosystem services, and it found about 25% of species were under threat, and about a million species are facing extinction, and many of these within the next decade. Yeah, I mean, that that's shocking, really, isn't it, when you... When you think of these stats like that and i feel like we're constantly kind of maybe hearing about these negative stories about how bad the state of biodiversity is how much of it is in decline um and it's, i mean do you think the policies and the, the work that's going on to reverse that is is doing enough or do you think we need to do a bit more i think in the past we protected wildlife primarily by banning things so you can't fell an ancient native woodland. You can't trim a hedgerow when birds are nesting. There's also been financial incentives where, for example, farmers could compete for agri-environment funding. A lot of it has um, required goodwill. So perhaps a farmer just planting a flower margin because he wants to see more bees in his land. Um, however, biodiversity it continues to, to decline and that highlights these actions, these ways we've tried to protect wildlife in the past are just not enough. So we need to we need to protect wildlife. We need to ensure that it's properly accounted for um, when we make decisions and in a similar way to carbon markets, biodiversity markets are beginning to develop. I feel carbon markets are much more straightforward. You've got a common currency that works across the globe. You know, you have tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. For biodiversity, it's much more difficult. So how could you put a value on different ecosystems or species? So how would an area of prime Amazon rainforest forest compare with a area of peatland or an area of wetland? It's really difficult to monetize in a way that's comparable. Um, to help us do this, we are getting toolkits popping up. Um, so these might monitor biodiversity directly, so species. Some might look at habitat types and conditions, and some might monitor the health of ecosystems. So um, an example, you've got the HDB Soil Health Scorecard, the Soil Mentor app. They're all designed to determine how healthy soil ecosystems are. Um, this is a dephrometric, which looks at habitat type and condition. And the dephrometric is designed to help um, account for biodiversity during development. So this is linked to these voluntary biodiversity markets that are beginning to establish and habitat banks so that um, developers can buy 
or they can look for biodiversity credits to offset the damage that might be caused by a development. At the minute, I think the biodiversity market is quickly evolving, it's accelerating, it's a little bit unregulated, it's perhaps in a bit of a wild west phase. Um, I think we need to have faith in this marketplace and know that the credits are properly validated and verified. I'm pretty sure that as the market develops like the carbon market, the problems will iron themselves out in time. But I think it's a very, a very quickly changing field. I feel like there's just something new that's um, appearing. Well, every week's a bit dramatic, but like, how are like land managers meant to know what to do? Like, if all these different systems are out there that they can pick, which which one do they go for? And like, how can they decide which one's best for them to get the best out of their land? moving forward or is it just a case of they have to just evaluate what they think personally would be best for them? I think that's a really good question Fiona and it's it's difficult when these markets are emerging to really know what they look like when even the people that are regulating them you know it's changing all the time. I think that their long-term decisions as well in the carbon market you're locked in for perhaps 70 years the biodiversity market you can be locked in for 30 years and it's considering what um you know that things have to be validated but also when it comes to biodiversity there's continued management that would be required to ensure that a habitat reaches the potential it should reach and monitoring that and that is where if you consider 30 years worth of um, monitoring and worth of management it's a big commitment. Yeah it's something that I think has come up throughout the first series we did of, of Natural Capital where you know whether we're talking about peatlands with um, you know the peatland code or um, soil carbon code or, or woodlands um it was something that came up very regularly and um you know in particular kind of making sure you're aware of what your baseline is and, and what your starting point is was another point that really came up quite a lot um in particular we, we did an episode with um, professor mark reed which basically looked a lot at you know this quite complex and emerging topic and yeah the potential great opportunities that exist with it but also kind of you know little caveats and things to be aware of and things perhaps not to to rush into um and that was in episode six of, of series one if you want to go back and, and listen to that um we also uh, rachel was also part of the thrill of the hill podcast series and they did an episode on natural capital, which we'll also give a link to in the show notes below as well. So, yeah, we kind of touched on the complexity of some of these markets, the the kind of importance of biodiversity and, and the services that they provide. I guess in, in my head, one of the slightly easier things to quantify and 
to work out the economic value of it would be pollinators um, and that's kind of one of the main things we want to talk about today is the, our bees and butterflies as well as the other biodiversity we have um, and in particular the the kind of crops they pollinate so when i think about pollination you know i mostly just think about bees so can you tell us a bit more about the different types of pollinating insects that you can find in scotland i think bees are certainly the most well-known pollinators and you know, most people will be able to immediately recognise bees. Um, they are typically the most effective. Bees are designed to, you know, they feed their larvae in pollen and they're designed to trap and carry pollen. So they've got little fringed hair in their body, which allows them to uh, um, trap the pollen better. They've got... Um, specialist features some bumblebees and honeybees they've got pollen baskets in their legs some of the hot the solitary bees have pollen baskets in their tummies um so they kind of have a bright yellow fluffy tummy <laughs> that's absolutely covered in pollen um there's a whole lot of other um you know we typically think of a honeybee or bumblebees but like I mentioned, there's a lot of solitary bees. So there's over 100 wild bees in Scotland and about three quarters of these bees are solitary bees. And they come in all different shapes and sizes, usually quite small though. So other pollinators that would be important, we're beginning to increasingly recognise the importance of flies. So flies such as hoverflies, um, I think, Hoverflies are some species, they not only pollinate, but they've got larvae that are ferocious predators of um, the likes of aphids. So they're like a, a super farmer's friend because they pollinate and they've got their aphid um, eating larvae as well. Um, yeah, win win, definitely. Um, also, you've got Things that are typically pests, so one of, obviously you've got pollen beetle and they're really quite a severe pest in oilseed rape, but if the density is right, they can actually pollinate the crop as well. And then some plants, you might notice plants like um, honeysuckle, it becomes really strongly scented at night and this is because attracts moss. I think because moss are active at night, you quite often don't really think of them as pollinators, but they're even, you know, a lot of moss species will pollinate as well as our bees, bumblebees, um, butterflies, beetles. That's really quite interesting. I, and I, I like the, what you said there as well about some species that perhaps we actually associate as being more pests but you know actually maybe they're not always a pest in the right place or the right situation there's potential benefits i guess of encouraging or not necessarily encouraging but even them be i guess in in farms and fields yeah i think this really hit home when i was doing surveying an oil seed rate field and i saw so few bees 
And it was like, well, the bees are certainly not doing the work. Um, and what I saw most was the pollen beetles. Obviously, they're pests, but they were also transferring pollen about. And I think if, if they were at the right density, they could potentially be beneficial. The, the research just isn't there, though. We don't know how much they contribute to pollination, but it would be definitely interesting to find that out. And what would the, was there a particular reason there wasn't many bees about? Are they also, I mean, we talked about biodiversity decline, are, are pollinators and bees, are they a species that's particularly badly impacted in Scotland? Or is there another reason perhaps they wouldn't be prevalent on that type of crop? I think one of the reasons is because oilseed drape it typically flowers in May and our bumblebees, for example, they've just emerged, the queens emerge from hibernation in May. So your bumblebees are all you've got really at that point in time are the queens. You might have a small number of workers that have just hatched out. But that point is where your bumblebee nests are at their smallest. So honeybees, they can be quite beneficial because honeybees will overwinter as a hive. So there's high densities of honeybees during spring. That's a bee's solitary bees. They're quite interesting as well because a lot of the solitary bees, they emerge in spring as well. So the potential of these different pollinators to work together is quite quite interesting. Yeah, no, that really is interesting. And I guess, um, I mean, if farmers were wanting to kind of encourage or land managers were hoping to encourage pollination or, you know, even just helping to increase the biodiversity and, and habitats and, and things like that they have on their farm for bees or other pollinators, what can they do? What would be your kind of recommendations? So I think when it comes to pollinators, the most important thing is most of our wild pollinators, they don't store large quantities of honey like honeybees do. So because of that, they need this constant supply of pollen and nectar throughout their season. So we typically see bumblebees first emerging in March and we see pollinators right through till about late September. So most farmers will think if they want to encourage pollinators, they'll plant wildflower strips and these are absolutely they're fabulous. Um, if you've ever walked through one, they're just buzzing with bees, butterflies, a whole lot of different insects. But mostly these strips will start flowering in July and August. So that leaves a shortfall of food early in the season. So that's when the bumblebee queens are emerging um, from overwintering. They are trying to build nests up. So that's where we think of other um, resources. And a lot of our woody plants flower early. So hedgerows are great, um, especially if you can have a diversity of different plants. 
trees such as willow, bird cherry, fruit, che fruit trees, they all provide early season forage. Um, beekeepers, you might have heard speaking about the June Gap. Um, that's a time when the spring flowers have typically finished and the summer flowers have yet to appear. So if you think during kind of late May, early June, what's in flower, it's actually crops. So crops such as oilseed rape and field bean can provide a good source of forage during this period of scarcity. Um, also, when it comes to the other resources that they need, um, areas of rough grass can provide nesting sites for bumblebees, um, solitary bees, um, you get mining bees, they dig into the soil, so areas of bare ground can help mining bees. Um, you also get cavity nesting bees and they, they'll nest in cavities and old plant stems and um, trees and stone walls. So I think key message is a lot of different habitats support a lot of different pollinators. So diversity is quite important. Just on a proper side note, why do mining bees dig into the soil? What do they, what are they looking for in the soil? Is it just shade? Good questions. Yeah. Never heard of they're, mining bees. They're actually, they bury into the soil and they lay their eggs in the soil. So they create little, little tiny nests. Quite often you'll see them, they're solitary bees, but some of the mining bees like will nest in the same area. Um, so they're kind of semi-communal, I guess you could say. Um, the cavity nesting bees, these are the ones you can buy the bee hotels. And we did an experiment and it was absolutely fascinating because we had little cardboard tubes and we unraveled them and we could see the larvae. And what they do is they pack pollen in and lay an egg and then they block off the the cap off with mud and then they fill the tube with little larvae and each larvae is its own source of pollen. Um, so it was absolutely fascinating. Um, just one of the researchers, they got um, leaf cutting bees and they, they wrapped their larvae in pollen in a leaf and packed the tubes. It was just amazing to see. So we've talked quite a lot there about different types of habitat and things like that, but I'm just wondering what impact does pollution or perhaps some chemicals or sprays or pesticides perhaps you may be using on farm, which are perhaps designed to target some other species, are they having a, a negative impact on bees and pollinators and is, is there much you can actually do about that? So a lot of the pesticides they will be um, they'll be trialled for safety for pollinating species. I think when it becomes difficult is that most fields don't have one single pesticide applied so the, bee, the pesticides are tested one at a time 
but in the field, your pollinators are experiencing a cocktail of different chemicals and how that cocktail impacts on the bees or hoverflies or any sort of insects, we don't fully know. I think there's been um, the neonicotinoids were banned because it was found that they were impacting on a range of different metrics. Like um, they were bees were taking longer to return with forage, um, density bee colonies weren't growing as quickly. Yeah, I guess it's a um it's it's kind of a complicated challenge, isn't it? Trying to get trying to do what you need to do in your farm to kind of protect your 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 yields and your crops and things like that, but also at the same time trying to um trying to kind of you know protect the biodiversity and, and the habitat and all the benefits from that at the same time. It's quite a different difficult balance I guess that a lot of land managers are, are faced with there. I think so, but I mean, I fully believe that we need our farming systems to be efficient because we all need to eat and we need to maintain yield where land's productive. And if we don't maintain yield in that productive land, it means that we might meet our food requirements by offshoring. And that could mean bigger impacts to biodiversity. It could mean an area of the Amazon's destroyed to meet our food needs. So I feel it's, I mean, part of efficient farming systems is the use of agrochemicals. Ensure if you're spraying chemicals that you've, um, you're following the label guidelines that you've monitor to see if the pests are at a threshold that requires spraying yeah i think i think it's it's courage as well because this is like it's not a new topic either is it you think back to um the use of things like ddt back in the 60s and you know it's kind of constantly evolving isn't it trying to understand what works what doesn't what we need and what we shouldn't be using at all have you come across any evidence that suggests that land managers are potentially concerned about um, pollinators on their land and impacts in the future? So we did a kind of questionnaire survey that went out to farmers from across Europe and we got a lot of responses from Scottish farmers as well. And Overall, we found about half the farmers felt that they were losing yields due to insufficient pollination services. What I found most surprising that of these farmers, only about half of them actually tried to do something to improve pollination. So um, either creating wildflower strips or bringing in managed bumblebees or honeybees. And I felt if you were to compare that to farmers losing yield because they didn't have enough fertiliser, well, every farmer would, well, not every farmer, but most farmers would think, okay, I need to increase the amount of fertiliser, um, organic or inorganic fertilisers to bring the yield up. So it kind of highlighted that 
a lot of farmers weren't seeing pollination as something they could actively manage. They just didn't know where to start, basically. Yeah, could be that. Um, so the scope, they could bring in bumblebees or honeybees or they could plant flower margins to try and increase the wild pollinators. I also think it's quite interesting, you know, you said it's Europe-wide, but it's not just an issue that's obviously affecting one country. It's not just affecting Scotland or another country. It's kind of a, a universal thing that people are trying to tackle and come up with solutions for. Yeah, I mean, the declines are really, they've been observed throughout the globe, not in every country, but primarily in countries that have um, seen rapid development, um, intensive agriculture, and just the loss of semi-natural habitats for a whole variety of different reasons. Since that um, study, have you seen any increase in interest, I suppose, or people taking action that you might not have thought about before, but now since you've done that research, you're now actively looking for it? Or do you think it? we're still at the stage where people are still gathering information of how to put it into practice? I think we are, there was a huge amount of money that's been spent in pollinator re research. So I think we're quite well-versed in what pollinators need. And I think a lot of the things farmers are doing will naturally benefit pollinators. So we've got more farmers trialing multi-species swords. We've got um, clovers going in. These are all aspects that will benefit pollinators as well as um, provide other benefits to both agriculture and biodiversity. So hedgerow restoration and planting etc so if you were wanting to kind of observe and monitor the different kind of species and, and that is there any links or useful resources you can recommend yeah there's quite a lot of good resources you've got the butterfly conservation they have um, the butterfly monitoring scheme bumblebee conservation have bee walks and also we have the pollinator monitoring scheme They've got an absolutely excellent app that you can download and basically you just sit for 10 minutes recording a flower or a bunch of flowers rather and you can add in your bees and butterflies etc as they, they land in the flower. So there's quite a lot of different ways farmers can monitor pollinators. Um, you might want to monitor them in crops as well. So there's some trials going on at Reading University where they're trying to develop monitoring schemes for different um, crops. That's great. And we will provide links to all these resources in the show notes and show description. You've mentioned a couple of times now about managed honeybees and bumblebees and we're thinking more generally about beekeeping, which is obviously, you know, a pretty traditional feature in a lot of farms. And you're starting to see a kind of, I don't know if you'd say a renewed interest, but it's definitely feeling a 
you're seeing a lot more beehives and things around about the place um, again. Are there any, I mean, is that all positive? Is there any issues or perhaps conflicts with that and kind of more native or wild bees? So managed honeybees and bumblebees, because we can buy in um, bumblebee nests, they forage in the same types of plants as our native pollinators, so they can directly compete with some for food, which could put additional pressure onto pollinators, on our, onto our native pollinators that are already um, struggling. To help reduce these problems, um, I think it depends on what the local floral resources are and in situations that you're dealing with mass flowering crops such as oilseed rape, there's such a big glut in forage that honeybees are unlikely to really have any adverse impact on our wild bees because there's plenty of food for everyone when um, oilseed rapes and flower. I think what is important um, is to ensure that, for example, if we import bumblebee nests, that they're species that are native to Scotland, that they're screened for disease and parasites. I mean, a situation that happened in Chile, but in the 1980s, they brought pollinators in, like um, bumblebees from Europe in, and they, in Chile, they have this huge golden a Patagonian bumblebee and when they brought the European pollinators in they began, they began to spread across Patagonia and they were competing with um, the European bumblebees for food and they also think that the European bumblebees perhaps brought in diseases that the Patagonian bumblebee couldn't um, fight off and it is now facing extinction. It's as the European bumblebees spread across Chile and Argentina, the Patagonian bumblebee just declined. Um, I suppose in Scotland we've got quite a unique situation in Colonsey and Orensey. Um, here they've got um, colonies of pure strains of native black honeybees and this is these bees were once common but as imported bees honeybees came in they started to hybridize and it's a little bit similar to your domestic cat and your wild cat so now colonsy and orangey have these pure strains and it's actually legislation that bans beekeepers from bringing other bees back in. Ah, so that's, that's really interesting. So I guess you can't just replace wild pollinators then with, with honeybees. It's not as simple as, as that, clearly. No. Honeybees, they're a little bit um, fair-weathered, let's just say. So they typically don't leave their hives till it's about 13 degrees Celsius. So bumblebees, they're bigger, they're fluffier, they're designed for um, foraging in cooler climates. Um, and they'll forage 
9, 10 degrees. So if you were to think an oil pen, oilseed rape is in flower, we could have a spring where, especially in Scotland, it never exceeds 13 degrees. So the honeybees could be doing absolutely nothing. Um, so for that reason alone, the two different types of pollinators can complement each other. Also, um, flowers and bees, they've co-evolved. So you've got crops such as tomatoes, blueberries, um, peppers, and they hold their pollen in like a little vessel, I kind of think it's like a pepper pot. And honeybees don't buzz pollinate, but um, bumblebees do. And buzz pollination is basically the bee attaches to the flower and kind of buzzes and vibrates and it shakes the little pepper pot that releases the pollen and allows and then the crops pollinated so that's you know these tomatoes blueberries peppers um then you've got some crops so things like oilseed rape apple strawberries raspberries they've got very open flowers so they are visited by a whole different variety of bees flies um beetles other flowers, if you think of field beans, they've got a really complex flower and really these flowers are designed for bees to navigate. So they've got landing strips for bees, the bee can push in and the nectar's hidden quite deep inside the flower and you require a bee with a very long tongue to access the nectar. So that's bees in the UK, like the garden bumblebee. It's quite funny though, because the bees, they, they get over this and you get like naughty bees and basically your honeybee and um, some of the short tongued bumblebees, they bite a hole at the base of the flower and they steal the nectar from the base and they don't pollinate the plant at all, but they still get the nectar so next time i swear next time if you're in a field of bean uh, beans have a look at the bottom of the flower and you'll probably see um a little hole that's been bitten by <laughs> a bee that's stealing the <laughs> nectar <laughs> it's incredible it's a whole like whole world going on out there which you know if you stop and have a look at it you'll see <laughs> see all these amazing things uh that's incredible and yeah, I kind of, I kind of understand. Need to field uh, of beans now. Yeah, we'll need to do that in our next, uh, our next visit. <laughs> Day trip out. Yeah, and I, but I, I think I'm kind of with them at the over thirteen degrees kind of, you know, thing. I, I also don't quite like on until it's that temperature either. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot there about bees, and we talked a quite a bit about you know making sure, um, so right kind of plant species and flowers and stuff to accommodate them is. That, is that the same for other pollinators? So, you know, would that benefit things like you know, your butterfly species as well? Is that what you're hoping to do? Yeah, so your butterfly, your butterflies, your hoverflies, there you're looking for also larvae requirements. So your butterfly species, um, depending on what you want to attract, different 
caterpillars are really fuss eaters, um, despite what the very hungry caterpillar says. They're very fussy eaters and um, they tend to focus, each species will focus on a specific plant. So your red admirals, small tortoise shell, peacock, they love stinging nettles. Um, other species will feed in grasses, so your ringlet butterfly, um, the small heath, they'll feed in grasses as larvae. Your hoverflies, they're really, there's a whole lot of different um, larvae requirements. Some like little rock holes. So, I mean, in my garden, our kids were horrified that I created a hoverfly lagoon, which is just like a tub of stagnant, stinking water. And they said, what's that for? And I said... I made them even more horrified. I said it's for hoverflies with what you call rat-tailed maggots, which are exactly like, you know, they do what they say in the tin. They're kind of maggots with a tail like a rat. And it didn't go down very well, this whole story, let's say. So some hoverflies like stagnant decaying. Um... Some hoverfly larvae, they feed in stagnant decaying material, um, dead leaves. Others will feed on aphids, like I said. Um, others, some feed on um, specific plants as well. You get a hoverfly larvae, I think it's mayweed. It feeds in the middle of the mayweed flower. Um, so lots of different weird and wonderful um, habitats for the larvae of hoverflies. Yeah, definitely. Well, I've learned an awful lot today about bees, butterflies and biodiversity, which I had no idea about before. So yeah, thank you so much, Lorna, for giving your time today and for coming to talk to us. No problem. Thank you for having me and glad to have someone listen to me about bugs. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, we'll need to get you back on. Thank you for listening and joining us for this episode. Please share, leave us a review and follow us for all our future episodes in the series. We hope you'll join us for the next episode, but in the meantime, have a listen to some of our other Faz Sound series, including Thrill of the Hill, Crofting Matters and Cropcast, which you can listen to wherever you normally get your podcasts from. Links to more information and a wide variety of other resources are provided with this podcast and they can also be found on the Fast Sounds pages and the Farm Advisory Service website. This podcast was produced as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.